It's the season for many, many things. It's the season for risking your life on roof lines if you, if you get really risky with Christmas lights and stuff like that. Uh, it's the season for maybe it's um, gifting and shopping and all those kinds of things. Uh, this is a, it's, it's also a learning time for kids. I don't know if you realize this, but I learned as a young parent with young kids that sometimes giving gifts does not come naturally. Have you ever noticed that? Like, you've got a kid who, who has shopped for something for a cousin, and then they have to wrap it up and keep it a secret from their cousin or their sibling for so long, and then they have to give it away? But I shopped for this. <laughs> you know, all these kinds of things. But um, when, we, when it comes to Christmas time, maybe your mind does go quickly to gift giving and things like that. Sometimes we, we need to learn how to give gifts. Sometimes we need to learn how to receive gifts. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes we need to learn how to receive gifts. Today, we're going to do part four of Steps to Personal Revival. If you've missed some of the previous uh, sermons, you can go online. Um, Actually, someone from Guyana was getting on my case for not uploading the sermons on time. Incredible. Yeah. Um, So unless, I don't know, maybe some of you know how to just kind of reroute your uh, emails to be sent, not from Colorado, but from Guyana. No, I'm kidding. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, this lady actually shared her personal testimony with me. She's a backslidden Adventist who has been experiencing personal revival in her life. She found our website somehow or another, started listening to sermons from back in January and just over the, the last several months. Has, uh, she's been reading the book, Steps of Personal Revival, that you know she downloaded it from online and stuff. So I don't know how many of you have picked up a copy. Um, but yeah, I hope you're experiencing revival the same way. Uh, today we're talking about part four. And the title is Make Room. Maybe a a more complete title would be Make Room for the Gift. Make Room for the Gift. Sometimes we need to learn how to give gifts, but I think at other times we need to learn how to receive gifts. I want to go to a story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, because there's a man who didn't quite know how to receive God's gift. Acts chapter 8, we're going to start a little bit before verse 20. So Acts chapter 8, this is one of those stories kind of in the the break line of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is kind of organized where the gospel is being spread by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem first and in all Judea. And then it breaks into Samaria, you know, beyond the bounds of the comfort zone and then into the uttermost parts of the world. So Acts chapter 8 is, is that kind of a break line where it goes from the Jewish nation to even Samaritans. Acts chapter 8, and you know what, before we even get there, let's, let's bow our heads for another word of prayer. Father in heaven, today as we open up the word, <clears throat> I am excited. <laughs> I pray that you would slow down my breath a bit and just give me a sense of how you are speaking to each and every one of us. I don't want to get in the way, Father, and I thank you for the ways in which you have used um, this sacred time, this sacred gathering over the last year and eight, nine months or so to create and generate eternal impact. And we just ask that you would be present and that we would be present with you. Thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. And at times we just need to be awoken, awakened to the fact that you are working and speaking and moving. So God, as we consider how it is that we can make room for the gift, I pray that you would send us your spirit to to inspire and to instruct, that as we open up the pages of scripture, we would see more than just ink on paper, but that we would hear the living word of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name, let the family say, 
Amen. Amen. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 8. We're in Acts chapter 8, and um, Christ is preached by one of the deacons. His name is Philip, in the town of, or the region of Samaria. The Samaritans, according to verse 4, it says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And, and the people were responding to the word. This is powerful stuff. In fact, there is one individual that heard what was going on that seemed to respond and receive the gospel. And down in verse 14, his name is Simon. I'm sorry, verse 13. It says, Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now in verse 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Probably a little suspicious of what could be taking place amongst people that were not Jews? What? And so Peter and John go down. Verse 15, who, when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive who? The Holy Spirit. Awesome. Awesome. They pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Key word there, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. There's that word again, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, kind of flashing back now to Simon. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was, what's the next word in your Bible? was given, he offered them what? Verse 19, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. How do you think this fell upon the ears of Peter and John? Not too positively. Notice verse 20, But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, Because you thought, now he's kind of getting to the heart of what Simon was really requesting, where all this this was coming from. You thought that the gift of God could be what? Purchased with money. You thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Simon knew he wanted the Holy Spirit. But there were certain things that he didn't know. There were certain things that he was completely ignorant of. Number one, he, he was ignorant of how to obtain the Holy Spirit. Number two, he was ignorant of from whom to obtain the Holy Spirit. He was going to Peter and John asking them for the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. But in ver- I guess a third thing that he, he was really ignorant of is what, and maybe we should say who, the Holy Spirit really is. Peter, in, in verse 20, he's educating him. No, 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 no. You don't understand. This is not a a product on the shelf to purchase. This is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. Gifts are things that we do not buy. Gifts are things we humbly receive. Amen? Amen? Amen. Yeah. So uh, in, in uh, another situation where Jesus himself was interacting with Samaritans, In John chapter 4, he's talking with the woman by the well. She's a Samaritan woman. 
and he references the gift of God, probably in his conversation with her, talking more about the gift of salvation. I think we have it here on the screen. It says, Jesus answered her. Remember the dialogue that was taking place. Jesus asked her for water. She's like, wait, wait, wait. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for water? And then Jesus' response is, if you knew the what? The gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, when we know, when we're aware that God has a gift for us, our response isn't, okay, let me get my wallet and checkbook out. How much do I owe you? When we know the gift of God, our response is to turn to him and ask, may I have this gift too? Do you follow today? Yes or no? Yeah? So when it comes to whether it's the gift of living water, the gift of salvation, or the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is a gift that we are given. We don't purchase, nor do we earn or receive. Remember, the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That gift is something we humbly receive. You know, Christmas, all its gifting expectations has somewhat skewed the meaning of what true gifting is all about. The biblical concept of gift doesn't, it's not, it's not like, you know, man, uh, don't get me on Santa. <laughs> uh, I hope I'm not popping anybody's bubbles or maybe I should. Anyways, but um, the, this whole like, he's got a list. He's checking it twice to see if you're naughty or nice. And, and this sense that gifts are things that we deserve, that we're entitled to, that we earn, that we merit, it totally messes up the gospel. Totally, completely. It's the antithesis of the gospel. And where gifting during Christmas time, the commercialization of gifting kind of highlights the receiver. Am I worthy of receiving this gift? Really, biblically speaking, the word gift is not so much about the receiver. It's about the giver. How gracious and generous the giver really is. So when we talk about the gift of God, man, we are highlighting that he is the greatest giver there ever could be. Why? Because his gift, the gift of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit is himself. He's not just giving a thing. He's giving himself. 2 Corinthians 9.15, I I think it says, uh, Praise be to God for this unspeakable gift. Indescribable gift. A gift that no words could really be adequate to describe. Man. Why? Because it's the gift of himself. So today, if the Holy Spirit is the gift from God, if, 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 if God is wanting to give us his personal presence, then let us, let's just kind of get this straight. This is not a gift that we pay for. This is a gift that we pray for. So the question today is this, how do we receive this gift? How can I be a receiver of this amazing gift? Maybe the better question is, when we're talking about how to receive the gift is not so much an action, but what kind of heart is ready to receive God's gift of the Holy Spirit? That's the question that we want to talk about today. And um, maybe you remember this. This was from last week. We looked at this. This is from the book that we gave out. If you haven't picked up a copy, I think we still have several copies there on the, in the front. Um, but from Helmut Haubeil. It says, No person can fill themselves with the Holy Ghost. So when we talk about that verse in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul isn't commanding us to fill ourselves. He's commanding us to be filled by God, right? No person can fill themselves with the Holy Ghost. This is exclusively the work of the Holy Ghost. But 
what, what is within our responsibility. But the individual should create the conditions so that the Holy Ghost can fill them. So here's the question today. What are those conditions? What makes the heart ready to receive? We're going to go through three conditions. I bet you you'll study this out more and you'll find 18 conditions, okay? But there are factors that I think that are interrelated. And so I've tried to kind of combine some things where we can talk about the factors that, that make for a ready heart, a heart that's ready to receive, all right? So heart condition number one is faith. Faith where? Faith in God's word. So not just faith that I believe God exists or faith that things will happen for me, but specifically faith in God's word, right? I mean, we we can have faith in a lot of things, but we're not talking about faith in a lot of things. We're talking about faith in God's word, not faith in myself, not faith in Santa. Okay, I'll stop saying Santa. Anyways, but faith in God's word, God's word. Did you know that the word of God and the spirit of God go hand in hand? And the reasons that I say that, I mean, we could probably cite many, many reasons. But first of all, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 1, it's the Holy Spirit that moved among holy men of God that authored the Word of God. Okay, so the Word of God is really inspired by Spirit-breathed. It's, it's the, the, whole, the Word of God is written by the Holy Spirit. And there are other reasons that we can look. If you still have Acts chapter 8 open... If you still have Acts chapter 8 open, just just remember what the Samaritans had just done prior to receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's see here. It's, it's down in verse 17. It says, Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. But what was their experience prior to that? Uh, go back to the verses that we read earlier. In verse 4 and 5, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching what? Preaching the word, Right? Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ, who is the Word, right? The Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. In other words, the Samaritan believers, prior to receiving the Holy Spirit, they had received the Holy Word. Prior to receiving the Spirit, they received the Scriptures, the message of the Savior. Christ preached to them. They placed their trust in Jesus. They, they had faith to believe, and that prepared the way to receive the Spirit. Just flip a few chapters later. A few chapters later, again, the gospel is being uh, expanded. It's going beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and Judea. And Peter, he is, he's given an invitation to come to someone's house, a centurion's house. His name is Cornelius. And he goes there, and he's preaching the word of God to them. And down in verse 44, this is Acts chapter 10, verse 44. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right. Acts chapter 10, verse 44 says this. While Peter was still speaking these what? These words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. I love that. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. It wasn't just that they heard it, but they heard it with faith. They responded in faith. They said, wait, this is a message from God to me, a message of salvation, a message that I can receive. And when they had faith to believe God's word, not just faith in anything, but faith that God was speaking to them. They believed, 
And that trust of the gospel of Jesus prepared the way to receive the spirit of Jesus. This is awesome. So faith in God's word, it's a prime condition. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. I think we have it here on the screen. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Notice how Paul makes this conclusion. It says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by what? By faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is Paul's conclusion on the matter. How do we receive the the, the Spirit? By faith, we receive the promise of the Spirit. So question today, if, if we're wanting to be receivers of the Holy Spirit, we need to ask ourselves, how is our faith in God's Word? How is our faith in God's promises? And maybe you're asking yourself, what can I do to make faith more my heart state? You know, what can I do to make faith in the Word alive in my heart? Can I suggest three things? Usually I save practical takeaways for the very end, but let me just kind of, as we're going along here, if we're wanting to to cultivate more faith, to grow our faith, let me suggest three things. First of all, we need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. If we want faith in the Word of God, we need to actually be in the Word of God, (laughs) right? Otherwise, we don't know what we're believing in. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. Faith doesn't come out of a vacuum. Faith comes as we're immersed in God's word. We hear it, and that's what we know that we can believe and trust in. So immerse ourselves in the word of God. I mean, John 15, verse 7, Jesus says, Abide in me, and my words abide in you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love that. It's not just that we stay in the Word, but the Word stays in us. And that's how we grow more faith. A second way, if you're wanting to, to cultivate more faith in your life, is to take the Word and pray the Word. Have you ever done that before? To take a promise from God and pray that promise. So there's, there's a promise in Philippians chapter 4, 19. I have it on my dashboard um, in my, my Honda Civic. And um, <clears throat> every now and then it, it, it flaps down, but... But every now and then I'm intentional to put it back up. And the promise is in Philippians chapter 4.19. My God shall supply all your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. That's something from his word. Take promises and pray them. God, this is something that you have promised to me. Apparently, this is a desire of yours. And I'm wanting to say it's my desire too. That's what it is, to pray the promises of God. Taking God's promises in prayer, believing them, believing that God is not a liar. Amen? He doesn't just say empty promises. He doesn't just say, hey, you know, this would be nice. (laughs) No, he's not going to give us empty words. So when we pray them, we're actually saying, God, you are not a liar. You are true to your word. And I'm going to believe that you're going to fulfill it, that you're even fulfilling it now before I've even seen any results. And praying them, praying these promises can actually involve thanking God for the fulfillment of the promises, even before you've seen the fulfillment of the promises, right? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, make your requests made known unto God. With thanksgiving, the Bible says. With thanksgiving. And you know what the result is? In verse 7, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's powerful stuff. That's faith in the word of God. When we actually say, oh, that's, that's a nice idea, 
I'm going to talk to God about that idea, okay? That, that, that's, that's, it's taking it from head to heart. It's actually saying, okay, God, I'm going to stand on your word. I'm going to thank you for fulfilling your word even before I've seen it. All right, so um, immersing yourself in the word, praying the word to exercise our faith. And I would also say this, if you're still wanting more ways to grow your faith, I would say this, it's, it's actually doing the word of God. So not just immersing yourself in the word and praying the word, but actually doing the word. Um, it, I think it's Acts chapter 5. Do we have a slide for this one? Acts chapter 5? No. Let's go there. Acts chapter 5. Maybe you're already still in Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Notice this. This is Peter again. He's preaching. He's kind of been uh, reprimanded by the religious leaders for preaching in the name of this crucified Savior who they don't believe is risen. (laughs) And in verse 31 and 32, this is Acts chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. It says this, Him, speaking of Jesus, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Verse 32, And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is who? The Holy Spirit, whom God has given to what kind of people? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Those who obey him. Those who obey him. Why is obedience so, uh, uh, part of, of the, the, um, the heart condition for preparing the way for the Holy Spirit? Why? Because obedience to the word is built upon faith in God's word. Yeah? Obedience to, to the word is an outward expression of our inward conviction that God's word is true. In other words, when we don't live out the word, we're expressing that inwardly we really don't believe the word. (laughs) That it's God's word, that it's for my best interest, that it's true, whatever the case. I mean, you you know, in James chapter 2, James, he's talking about how faith without works is what? Do you guys remember Yeah, faith without works is dead. In other words, faith, this internal conviction without outward evidence is dead. So if you want to kill your faith, don't live out the word. You want to make your faith come alive? Live out the word. You know there are things that God has instructed you. You know there are things that God has promised you. You know there are things that God has counseled you. We grow our faith when we actually live according to that word. Okay, so growing your faith by immersing yourself in the word, by praying the word, and actually doing the word of God. All right, so heart condition number one, faith in God's word. Faith in God's word. How how about number two? Heart condition number two, thirst. Oh, I love this one. Thirst. Thirst for what? Thirst for God's presence. Let's go to the book of John. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This is probably the promise you know, ever since kind of grabbing a hold of Helmut Haubeil's book, um, this is the promise that I've prayed the most frequently, I think, <laughs> uh, in terms of praying for the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, beginning of verse 37. John 7, 37. We'll go all the way to 39. John seven thirty-seven to 39. When you're there, say, Amen. Amen. All right. Reading from the New King James, the Bible says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wow, that's a beautiful promise. You're thinking, man, this is so poetic, you know, thirsting, drinking, out of my heart, rivers of living water. What is Jesus talking about? And John makes it plain in verse 39. But this he spoke concerning who? The Spirit. Whom those believing in him would receive. There's that faith condition, okay? From the, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's going to receive the Spirit, but he'll also give the Spirit. That's an awesome promise there. So when we're thirsty for God's Spirit, we can come to him and drink. When we're thirsty for God's spirit, we can come to him and drink. In other words, when we're not thirsty, we won't come. Did you catch that? That, That's the implication. When we're not thirsty for his presence, we're not going to ask for his presence. So this is a condition that we need in our hearts. So what does it mean to be thirsty for God's presence? What does it mean to be thirsty for God's spirit? When we say thirst, you know, I I think we talk about... um, Thirst on on two different levels. One, thirst on the the level of need, right? When I say I'm thirsty, I'm talking about a physical need for hydration. (laughs) I don't have enough. So spiritually speaking, when I say I'm thirsty, I'm acknowledging that I don't have what I need. Yeah? When I say that I'm thirsty, spiritually speaking, I I, I, I don't have what I need. Remember, um, a few weeks ago, we looked at the parable in Luke chapter 11. Um... There was a friend who had a friend come to him at midnight. You remember the parable? And the friend who is now playing host to this road traveler doesn't have anything in the pantry. Goes to his other friend and knocks on the door, even at midnight, and says, "Um, I've got a friend who's here, but I have nothing to set before him. The friend who's asking for the Holy Spirit realizes that I have nothing. You contrast that with the message to the church of Laodicea. You remember that church? The church in Revelation chapter 3? The church who has Jesus where? Not inside, but outside. And what are they saying about themselves? I am rich and have need of nothing. Worlds apart. Worlds apart. When we feel like we need nothing, when we have no thirst, Jesus is on the outside. But when we have nothing. When we acknowledge our deep need, we are knocking hard. We are asking, seeking, and knocking for the Holy Spirit. When we, when we thirst, we're talking about need. Need involves deep humility. It involves the honesty uh, to, to, say, to say that we have nothing apart from Christ. But I, I think also when we talk about thirst, we're not just talking about our need that we lack, um, but we're also talking about a deep desire for what we lack. There's a difference, right? I know that I need gas in my car, but I don't really want to go to the gas station and get it, okay? I know that I need to exercise 30 minutes a day, you know, <laughs> but I don't necessarily want to take 30 minutes a day. Anyways, you, can, you know where that's going. Okay, difference between need and desire. But when I am thirsty, I can also be referring to my deep, even painful longing for what I lack. You know, um, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, he talks about thirsting and hungering for righteousness. We long, we desire 
righteousness that we don't have. In, uh, in the Psalms, man, I just love the way that, Don, uh, that David uh, articulates this in the Psalms. He says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. This is, this is uh, I mean, we, we have that nice song, as the deer. This is actually a hunting scene. The deer is being hunted for, running. And <sighs> that's when the deer is thirsty, right? I don't know how, how when, when we relate to the fact that, man, we are in a spiritual war, that we are being hunted down. We are thirsty for God's presence. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. David was a man on the run. He knew what it was like to be on the run. He knew what it was like to be far from God because he felt like he was far from other people. And then he says this, when can I go and meet with God? He wanted to be with God. He was talking about his house, his, his physical, you know, the place of worship. Man, I just want to go back there. He wanted God's presence. He deeply desired God's presence. In Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. And notice this, my whole being longs for you. My whole being longs for you. You We can intellectually agree, yes, I need God's spirit. But do we genuinely desire God's spirit? Do we long for him with our whole being? There's a difference between needing God, knowing that you need God, and actually wanting God, craving God longing, thirsting for God's spirit. I want to go to a text in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44, verse verse 3. And just think about this for a little bit. Do I, do I crave, do I long for God? Do I crave God's spirit in my life? Am I thirsty? If not, why not? Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. Isaiah 44, verse 3. When you're there, say, I found it. it. Isaiah, Old Testament prophet, verse 3. God is speaking. It's kind of like, yeah, the words of God basically here through the prophet Isaiah. It says this. For I will pour water on him who is what? Thirsty. And floods on what kind of ground? Dry ground. Well, what water? What floods are you talking about? I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. For those of you parents, this is an awesome promise to pray for your kids. <laughs> that God would pour his spirit on your kids. But what I want to zero in on is the, the first part of verse 3. I will pour water on him who is what? Who is thirsty. Floods upon what kind of ground? Dry ground. You need to understand, dry ground thirsts for water. When, when water is, or when ground is dry, it'll soak that stuff right up. Dry ground thirsts for water. But I would also say this, saturated ground does not. Right? When ground is sogging wet, you can pour water on it all day long and it won't take. Why? Because it's already full. Ask the question to yourself again, am I thirsty for God's spirit? If not, why not? Question, are there things in my heart that have saturated my heart that is taking away from my thirst and my craving for God? There's a wise saying in Proverbs 27, verse 7, 
One who is full loathes honey from the comb. <laughs> honey is good stuff. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're not a honey fan. I'm a fan. Peanut butter, banana, with a drizzle of honey on top. Mmm, just right. Maybe you like your tea with a little bit of lemon and honey. I don't, whatever it is. Honey is good stuff. At least in this verse, that's what it's talking about. It's, it's supposed to be representative of the sweetest stuff that the world has to offer. But the, the, the proverb is saying that someone who is full, even the sweetest stuff, the best gift, that will be abhorrent. You won't even desire it. You'll loathe it. So talking about longing for the Spirit, we will only long for the Spirit when we thirst for the Spirit. But if I'm not thirsty, what am I full of now? That's, that's what the challenge is here. Are there things in my heart, are there things that my heart is saturated by that is taking away my desire for what I really need? In order to be filled, maybe our lives need to be emptied. Okay, so... Heart conditions, again, the condition of faith in God's word, the condition of thirst for God's presence, and maybe we need to cultivate more thirst, longing. How do I cultivate more thirst? Maybe I need to identify the things that are already taking up my thirst. Does that, does that make sense today? Yeah. Uh, when you, <laughs> I don't know if this ever happens, when you're going over to a potluck lunch or to uh, maybe, you know, the meal is just, Man, you, you can smell it. It's just taking a little bit too long for your liking to get ready. And so you help yourself to the dessert table. Has that ever happened to you? No? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> it's the dessert first principle. Man, what ends up happening? I don't want the good stuff. Why? Because I'm filled with the junk. Not to say that... Des- okay, sorry. Desserts. Anyways, okay. <laughs> um, but you, you understand the metaphor. If I've filled up on, uh, you know, other empty calories, I'm not going to go after the good stuff. If I'm full, I'm going to loathe the honey. What's taking away my appetite for God? Okay, let's go to the third condition. We've got faith in God's word, thirst for his presence. Third condition, repentance from, from sin. Let's go back to Acts. Acts chapter 2. This is that day that's known as the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter and all of those who were gathered in the upper room, they've been filled with the Holy Ghost. Tongues of fire appeared above their heads. They were speaking in many languages. The gospel was being preached on a particular day when there happened to be many, many different uh, people with, from different dialects gathered there in Jerusalem. Peter is preaching a 10-minute sermon, and the multitudes are moved. They are pricked in the heart, right? Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. When you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What had they just heard? They'd heard a powerful testimony by Peter, right? Peter the apostle, Peter the one who denied Jesus. He's preaching this sermon. And he's basically, what he has just told them is, you just crucified the Messiah. (laughs) You, You did it. But this one that you crucified, he's been risen. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the one that you've crucified is, is, is able to give salvation and forgiveness of sins. And so the, the, 
the, the people who are hearing, they're pricked in their heart. What do we do? What do we do? And in verse 38, notice how Peter responds. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And what will happen? And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And So what is Peter telling them to do? How do you prepare your heart? Peter, I, I, want, I want this gift of salvation. I want the gift of the Spirit. How do I prepare my heart? Peter says, repent. Peter says, repent from sin. You know, repentance, the word itself means a change of mind. A change of mind and purpose. But really, there, there's more to it than that. It's, it, it's a sorrow for the direction that you're headed and a complete 180 because you want to go home. <laughs> For, for the, the audience of Peter, those who were there gathered on the day of Pentecost, what did repentance involve for them? I think it involved being confronted with the cross of Christ, right? The fact that Jesus is crucified. They were confronted with Calvary. I want us to understand this. Before Pentecost, there was Calvary. Did you catch that? Before there was Pentecost, there was Calvary. If we ever want to experience Pentecost again, it will, as, it will be as we experience Calvary. Man, one of my, my favorite moments of the cross involved in the Passion story. You read it in Matthew, you read it in, in Luke, uh, you read it in Mark. One of my favorite moments is after Jesus breathes his last, there's a centurion who's watching and he says, do you remember what he says? Surely this is the Son of God. Go with me very quickly. Uh, keep your finger here, Acts chapter 2. Go with me to 1 John chapter 2. He confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. There was something about the way he breathed his last. There was something about the way he, he did not come down from the cross. There was something about the way that uh, the king could not be held back from offering forgiveness. And he said, surely this was the Son of God. Uh, let's see if we can find this. I, wasn't, I didn't have this in my notes. Um, oh man, where is it? Oh, please, Lord. <laughs> I know it's in First John. <laughs> is it two? No. This is this is what happens when you depart from your notes. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> is it five? I'm sorry, guys. Is it four fifteen? Thank you. Thank you. Four fifteen. Four fifteen. Okay, there it is. The experience of the centurion right there. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God does what? Make the connections here. Make the connections. When we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God's Spirit abides in us. God dwells in us. This Roman centurion had the Holy Spirit as he's standing there seeing Jesus on the cross, as he confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him. If, he's, if we're going to claim this promise for the Roman centurion, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. How can we confess that Jesus is the Son of God? It's only as we're confronted with the cross. It's only as we see Jesus suspended between heaven and earth for my sin and yours that we can say Jesus is the Son of God and repent from our responsibility for that and lean into the hope that the one who is hanging there is hanging there for me. 
that repentance, that experience, that experience prepares the way for God to abide in us. Sorry for that five-minute departure there. Okay. So going back, going back to Acts, Acts chapter 2, when he says, repent and be baptized. And it's experiencing Calvary before we experience Pentecost. And I just want us to, to remember who in the world is actually saying repent in Acts chapter 2. Who, who is the one that's preaching this again? It's Peter. It's Peter. Do you realize how much Peter had to go through in order for him to be able to tell others to repent? Think about this. <laughs> Peter could only preach repentance if he had powerfully and personally experienced it himself. Imagine the upper room dynamics after the crucifixion of Jesus. Imagine what that was like. You know, there were 50 days between crucifixion and Pentecost, right? Passover and Pentecost. Imagine the, the man, just the awkwardness. Peter trying to hang out with his buddies. After Jesus had told him, hey, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Imagine those kinds of, you know, just, man, the heart work that would have needed to be done in Peter to be able to call others to repentance. Probably heart work for the others around Peter to be able to let Peter preach on their behalf. You know? It, and it, it wasn't just Peter that was at fault. Every one of them abandoned Christ that night. It wasn't just Peter. They all had much to repent of, sorrow over, and turn away from. There's a, a really neat description in the book, Acts of the Apostles, that describes the, the dynamics in the upper room. I don't know if you've read this before. This is Acts of the Apostles, starting on page 36. It says, As the disciples waited for the fulfillment of the promise, remember, because Jesus had given them the promise of the Holy Spirit, told them to wait until they received the promise. They humbled their hearts in what? True repentance, right? What did they repent of? Uh, they, they humbled their hearts in true repentance and confessed their unbelief. They reproached themselves for their misapprehension of the Savior. Oh, if they could but have the past three years to live over, they thought, how differently they would act. So they were kind of reviewing things. Man, when I was interacting with Christ this way, I said this and I didn't do that. I, I was so unbelieving and dull of heart. I don't know, that's just my words. Maybe they didn't say that themselves. But it says they sorrowed for having ever grieved him by a word or an act of unbelief. But they were comforted by the thought that they were forgiven. I love that. Now notice this. Putting away all differences, all desire for the supremacy, they came close together in Christian fellowship. They repented of a lot of things. I don't know if you know, noticed it there. They repented of unbelief. They repented of grieving Christ, being dull of heart, unresponsive to his will. They, they even repented of grieving each other. This was a time, man, the upper room. I mean, you, you think there are a lot of tissue boxes here. <laughs> the upper room probably had a lot of just emotional baggage to work through. They had to overcome some serious trust issues with Peter and with each other. Some real grieving, some real forgiveness to be shared. I mean, I mean imagine the forgiveness that they had to give towards Judas. Judas not only betrayed Jesus, Judas betrayed them. This is the guy that they trusted, right? There is some real heart work being done. You know, this is one of the reasons why we've kind of planned this, uh, the Power of Forgiveness weekend. 
kind of in the stream of this experience of focusing on the Holy Spirit, because I really believe that some of the repentance that needs to take place is not just repentance toward us and our vertical relationship, but even repentance toward one another. That these are kinds of things that need to be surrendered and turned from and sorrowed over. Why? Because it prepares the heart to receive the Spirit. Peter and his buddies, they did the heart work. Man, they, they were there in the upper room. They were, how does it say in Acts chapter 1? They were together in one place, in one accord. It's not just talking about a Honda. <laughs> that is talking about relational oneness, a unity that prepares the way for the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit gives unity, but there's unity that prepares the way to receive the Holy Spirit. How does that repentance happen? I think there's something else involved in Peter's appeal. He didn't just say repent. Remember Acts chapter 2, verse 38. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized, immersed, dunked. In what? In the name of Jesus Christ. You know, baptism, yeah, it's talking about the physical water baptism here. But I, I think when we talk about baptism as an experience of giving everything to Jesus, right? Baptism isn't just let me dip my, you know, part of myself in there. It's going all in. It's consecration. It's surrender, right? So involved with this repentance from sin, we're also surrendering to God. That's what's involved here. The act of baptism is an act of surrender. Nothing held back. Giving myself wholly and completely to the Lord. I love how Desire of Ages puts this. Um, There is no limit to the usefulness of one who by putting self aside makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. That is awesome. No limit to the usefulness of one. Well, what, what kind of one? One who puts self aside and makes room. Makes room. Question today. As we talk about these heart conditions. All of these heart conditions are, are ways that we make room for the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> if you think about the flip-flop, the opposite of these things, we're talking about faith in God's word as a, as a way to make room for the Spirit. Well, it's really unbelief that crowds out the Holy Spirit, right? When we talk about thirst for God's presence that makes room for the Holy Spirit, it's really saturation and satisfaction with the things of this world that crowds out the Holy Spirit. Do you follow that? And then when we talk about repentance from sin that makes room for the Holy Spirit, it's, it's rebellion and cherishing sin that crowds out the Holy Spirit. So you think about these three heart conditions today. Which of these three conditions do you feel like God wants you to pay close attention to this week? If you were to look at this list, man, what are the things? What's the one, if I were to, to really surrender to God and just pray before God. Lord, give me faith in God's word or Lord, give me thirst for your presence or Lord, give me genuine repentance. Which one of these would immediately make room for the Holy Spirit in your life? So, simple appeal. <clears throat> you know, we've been talking about praying and asking for the Holy Spirit. But I want to appeal to pray a little bit differently this week. And the appeal is this, that every day this week, to pray not just for the Holy Spirit, to, pr- to pray for the conditions. Does that make sense? 
Don't just pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray to be ready to receive, to make room for the Holy Spirit. How? Pray for faith. God, give me faith in your word today. Give me a greater thirst. I I realize that I'm not, I, I thirst for a lot of things, but I don't necessarily thirst for you. God, give me thirst for your presence. Or maybe it's repentance from sin. Lord, give me genuine repentance. Do you follow that today? Simple appeal. Don't just pray for the Holy Spirit. Pray for the conditions for making room for the Spirit. And I want to say this too, a second appeal maybe, that I have found personally that my morning worships have drastically changed after just kind of studying these things and what makes room for the Holy Spirit. How has it changed? Morning worships, uh, I don't know if you can resonate, but morning worships have, there's a tendency for morning worships for me to kind of be a thing to do, like something to check off on a to-do list. Um, But I would encourage you to reevaluate your goal in morning worship. Not not just to let it be uh, something to do or part of your routine, not just to let it ease your conscience (laughs) that you've done it, Um, not, not even just to learn something new, but that your goal in morning worship would be to make room. Like when you're reading, or maybe, maybe I don't know what, it, what your, your normal routine would be. Maybe it's going through the Sabbath school lesson or going through your reading plan. That your goal in going through that and reading through that or praying that or singing that song, that your goal would be to cultivate more faith in God's word. That your goal would be to be more thirsty for his presence. That your goal would be to repent from sin. That you wouldn't just do the thing. That you wouldn't just have worship. But that as a result of having time with God, that you would make room for the Holy Spirit. Yeah? Let all you do in it, all your reading, praying, singing, listening, journaling, etc., lead you to make room for the Holy Spirit. Make it a time to truly give all to Jesus so you can receive all from Jesus. Time to exercise faith. Assess and increase your thirst and truly experience repentance. Hmm. So, how many of you today want to take one of those take-home challenges? Yeah, I'll pray the conditions or, yeah, I'm going to reevaluate my morning worship goals and just make it about receiving the Holy Spirit. How many of you want to take one of those challenges today and say, yeah, I'm going to do that? Amen. Amen. Cool. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you just for this chance to study. Uh, I know we covered a lot of ground here. And there's probably more ground to cover. God, I realize that your Holy Spirit is the gift of God. And today we confess that. We we, we confess our faith in that. Um, And we just want to, to give you permission to increase our faith, make us more thirsty, and give us the gift of repentance. We don't want anything to hold you back from giving the Holy Spirit. Like we read last week, you give the Spirit without measure, without limit. But apparently, we don't give ourselves to you without measure and without limit. So please, Lord, give us more faith, more thirst, more repentance, so we can not just have you fully, but so you can fully have us. We pray in Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. Amen.